is God's purpose being fulfilled. It was planned and ordained, and He promised to reach man. It's the beginning of the passion of Christ. He is about to crush the head of the serpent, but in doing so, He will bruise His heel. Jesus will die in our place. In verse 27, we read, first and foremost, before the passion begins, that Peter denies him, or will deny him. Then Jesus said to them, All of you will be made to stumble because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. And Peter said to him, Even if all are made to stumble, yet I will not be. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, that today, even this night, before the rooster crows, twice, you will deny me three times. But he spoke more vehemently. If I have to die with you, I will not deny you. They all said likewise. Now, for those of you who study the scriptures, you'll know that that's um, in verse 27 there. It's taken from Zechariah chapter 13, verse 7. And you read that, and it's really talking about the false shepherd. And it's kind of like, how does the fulfillment of uh, scripture tie in with that when it's here Jesus is using it about him being betrayed and being taken captive and all. And what you have is not, the word fulfilled is something that we have to be kind of careful with. It is the finishing and a fulfillment of prediction at times, but also this is where this one comes in. It's also sometimes a simple a type of a prototype. And so there's a principle there. That's uh, I know that's a little bit deeper than some of you dig, but that, for those of you who dig, dig deep, that's what's going on here. And we see that also, uh, I think, in chapter 2, and Matthew's another good example, uh, uh, where it says that my son would come out of Egypt. And in the typology, there's a prototype. Obviously, that's talking about Israel coming out of Egypt under Moses. But then the prototype of, is that Christ came out of Egypt after being there. They were sheltered and protected and developed while they were in Egypt. And then at the right time, they were brought out and established, even as Jesus was sent there to Egypt, protected, and then brought out uh, to fulfill his purposes. So just a principle to help you along in your Bible study for those of you who are uh, true Bereans and really like to dig in. But getting into this here, Jesus uh, made predictions of what would happen. We covered last week, he, uh, or... or uh, yeah, last week he would be betrayed, and now we have a denial, and uh, they would all be offended. The idea of, of being offended here is that the sufferings that Jesus was about to uh, undergo, that uh, the death and, and and all that would come upon him would cause them to disassociate themselves with him, and and that's what the, the scandal. Uh, it's, we get the word scandalized from, from the Greek word here. And so they were offended in that Jesus would have to die. They had in their minds, remember, they had in their minds that Jesus is Messiah. And if he isn't the Messiah, then that means he will overcome the Romans and establish his kingdom at that point in time. And they just could not see beyond 
that. that. That was the only lens they seemed to be able to see through. And so as a result of Jesus being apprehended here in the garden, being uh, beaten and mocked and scourged and then crucified, it was an offense to them. They had to disassociate themselves with him or die with him. And so that's the idea of what Jesus is communicating to them. Now what's interesting about this to me is verse um, 28 is he understands this completely. He knows that they're going to be offended. He knows that they're all going to deny him. Not to the degree that Peter did, and we'll talk about that in a little bit here, but uh, that they're all, as a result of their denial, they're going to have to be reinstated, reaffirmed uh, in their calling. So right, right up front, right after he tells them the bad news, he gives them hope. I, after I have been raised, I will go before you. God always goes before us. This is an important principle for us to understand as we walk with the Lord. God has purposes. God has plans for those purposes. God has promised within those plans and purposes to do what he said he would do. And here we have one of them. He promised to go before them after he was raised from the dead. This is a pattern in scriptures for those who love the Lord. He works in this way within our lives. He knows our failures. He knows uh, our propensities to, to do things that are contrary to his will. But he loves us and accepts us and has provided that forgiveness for us. It's called grace. It's immeasurable. He knew this very night that they would all flee and forsake him when the mob came to arrest him. And you have to remember in God's plan, perfect plan, that it was his words to the mob that gave them free course to leave. If it is I who you seek, then let these go their way. So he released them. They didn't have to fear or run, but human nature being what it is, this is, this is the natural man. Without the Spirit of God, we've, we've, we faint. We need the Spirit of God, the grace of God for us to stand strong. Now, the principle here, this is important for us here. God shows us things to come. He tells us things ahead of time so that when they come to pass, we might believe. John 14, verses 25 through 29. These things I have spoken to you while I was present with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled. Neither let it be afraid. You've heard me say that I'm going away and coming back to you. And if you love me, you would rejoice. Because I said I'm going to the Father. For my Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it comes that when it does come to pass, you may believe. I no longer will talk with you much for the ruler of this world is coming and he has nothing in me again God had planned how this would roll out his purpose was going to be fulfilled and he has promised now that he would go before them to the Galilee their hearts obviously would be shattered by the events and by their own betrayal they'd walked with him for over three and a half years and now they turn their back on the Messiah how could they do that? 
And so he wanted this revelation to be within their minds, that they would reflect upon, okay, he, 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 what were his last words? He's going to go with us. Somehow he's going to be in Galilee, and he's gonna, we're going to meet him again. They, he wanted them to remember that. How many things have, has God spoken to you personally? And you, you, you're, you're at the stage that these men were in the, in the next three days. You forgot. You forget. It probably really wasn't the Lord. It was probably me just making it up. There's all kinds of thoughts that go through our minds. And yet we are called to remember what God has spoke to our spirits, what he has spoke, spoken to our hearts. It's to show us things to come so that when they do come to pass, we go, yes, all right. <laughs> way to go, God. This is so great. And our faith is strengthened. It's the way it's supposed to be. And so knowing that their hearts would be shattered, he gives them that promise. And it took an angel in Matthew 28, 7, to remind them. Remember the words that he spoke to you, that he would go before you? This happened on the morning of the resurrection. And sometimes God has to bring other people into your life to remind you of the things that he's already spoke to your heart because we have remarkable forgetters. And we, we don't trust ourselves. I think this is important uh, to, to gather from this the principle that at the mouth of two or three witnesses, let everything be established. We have the witness of Christ, what he said he would do, the promise. And now we have the angel's word in twenty-eight Matthew 28, 7. Recall the words. Do you remember the words that he gave you that he would go before you? And so, John 21, 1. Jesus showed himself to them. Turn with me to that one, or you can, they'll, they'll have it on the screen here shortly. John 21, 1 is a fulfillment of that promise. God can never lie. He always tells us the truth. In John's Gospel, verse 1 of chapter 21, these things Jesus, after these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. And in this way, he showed himself. Notice that the word showed twice. You think the Lord wants us to see something here? Wants us to understand his ways? Again, it's at the mouth of two or three witnesses. Let everything be established. He keeps his word by bringing it to pass. This is the way the Lord reveals himself. He speaks to our hearts through his word. That's why the word of God is so very important in your life. If you neglect your Bible reading, you're missing the voice of God in your life. He speaks to us through his word. He will confirm it in your heart and through the mouth of someone else who loves him. He can use the ungodly, I suppose, if he wanted to. But he will give another witness so that you understand that it's not coming within you. This is truly something the Spirit of God wants to do in and through your life. It gets personal. Now, there's those of you who wonder why I teach the Bible the way I do. I'm not interested in being a great pontificator and eloquent of speech. I don't have a golden mouth nor a silver tongue. There are many pastors that do, and God bless them for their giftedness. My interest is in making disciples. So the only thing our church needs a discipleship program. Right here it is. I am teaching you how to walk with God. That which I have received is what I'm imparting to you. What I have learned in my life, walking with the Lord, I'm imparting to you. And these are valuable principles, and they work. Because God's word cannot be denied. 
God keeps his word and it will come to pass. Isn't this wonderful to just walk with God and see him at work within our lives? But on the other hand, we have to remember the propensity that we have to fail, to do wrong, to defile ourselves and to miss uh, what God wants to do in our lives. Let's not think more highly of ourselves than we ought to. And we see this here in Peter's uh, denial. Even if, even if all the other guys, you know, I can understand these flunkies bailing on you, Jesus, but I won't. I'm different. See, the problem with Peter is a humankind problem. He really didn't believe what Jesus said, did he? You will deny me. I won't deny you. Yes, you're going to deny me. Assuredly. There's no doubt about it, Peter. This is going to happen. Oh, no. Oh, no. Can you contradict the Lord? <laughs> I mean, that is, that is not wise. Why did he do that? Because he was self-confident. I will not be offended. You see, he had an expectation with his, in his own personal ability. He actually thinks he understands himself sufficiently. Now, it doesn't take too many days, months, or years in walking with the Lord to realize Hill, you can't be trusted. You've got a problem. Well, Peter hadn't learned that yet. And I'm going to be lighting up a little bit on him because at this point he didn't have the Holy Spirit indwelling him. It was the man. We understand in his mind, in his thoughts, he, in his, he was loyal and he loved God. And there's no question about any of that. Among all the disciples except Judas, they love the Lord. You love the Lord. I love the Lord. There's no doubt about the sincerity. But that's not the issue. The sincerity is what we are leaning on and trusting in. The, the picture in the Old Testament is the king of Israel leaning towards Egypt for security and health and deliverance. And the prophet, the spokesman of God in this case says, Leaning on Egypt is like leaning on a broken reed. You lean on it, you're going to get hurt. He's going to poke you. He's going to hurt you. You lean on the flesh, you trust in your own ability, you're going to get burned. It's going to hurt you. And understand that. Now in Luke's Gospel, chapter 22, uh, verses 31 through 34, we sort of have a little fuller picture, if you will, of what went on here. And the Lord said to Simon, Simon, indeed, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. But I've prayed for you that your faith should not fail and that when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. But he said, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And then he said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster shall not crow this day before you deny me three times that you know me. Verse 35 of the same chapter through 38 and he said to them when I sent you out with a money bag knapsack and sandals did you lack anything and they said nothing and he said to them but now he who has a money bag let him take it and likewise a knapsack and he who has no sword let him sell his garment and buy one for I say to you that that this was written must be accomplished in me and he was numbered with the transgressors and for the things concerning me 
have an end. And so they said, hey, Lord, look, here's two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. So I can't imagine, and I'm not going to begin to try to figure out what was going on through the minds of these disciples because he's talking about this. And then he's talking about sword and they have the kingdom being established and, and the Romans of betrayal and denial. It's like they're being inundated with knowledge and they're trying to get their minds around it. And then he brings this whole thing up with the swords. Hey, look, so I've got this feeling that they're thinking this is going to get kinetic. This is going to get physical. And I can just imagine Peter probably being the older of the fellas in the group. I think that's what is believed. That's why he probably had the position of, of more of the leader of the, of the group. He's the sword. I mean, bring it on, Rome. Well, we've got Jesus on our side, you know. <laughs> I don't know. But I, I, I think that's why he took the sword to the garden. Because he knew what was coming, it was going to get. And so I'm going, to, I'm going to be able to keep my word to my Lord all in strength and confidence of the flesh. He tried hard. He was going to take them out one at a time, one ear at a time, you know, <laughs> right? The Lord said, put it up. That's not part of the plan. That's not my purpose here. I promised it otherwise. So his problems were self-confidence and self, actually self-deception. I'm different than the others. They might betray you, but I won't. You can't argue with the Lord and those kinds of things. Anyone of us who have a true encounter with God will learn this right out of the gate. The corruption of our own human nature. Isaiah, the holy man, the holy prophet, called by God. If anyone was without sin, it would have been Isaiah. But he comes into the presence of God. This is chapter 6. Woe is me, for I am undone. Literally, I am taken apart. We can use the word discombobulated. He was taken apart in the presence of God. So sometimes when we're in the presence of God, and it happens to me, it happens to you, like, I feel so dirty. I'm so ashamed. Oh, God. You know, we have those moments. We're not to fear those moments. That is, that is an acknowledgement that we are in the presence of the Holy One. Ourselves compared to Him. And then what does He say to him? Hold on. Let's take a coal from the altar and touch your unclean lips, your tongue. For you and me, it's the blood of Jesus. And we're accepted in His sight. It's just important for us to understand the principles that are in his word. Jeremiah 17 verse 9 explains it perfectly. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? I, the Lord, test the mind even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. And so this is the purpose of trials. It brings up the dross that we can see who we are and what we are before the presence of the Holy One. And then we admit it, we confess it, it is washed away. And that is the process of sanctification within the life of a believer. There's nothing wrong. We should praise the Lord that we're brought under conviction. So important that we understand that and not run from it, not be offended by it. 
we learn to greatly appreciate the blood of Jesus Christ. Jesus assures Peter of his denial. Using that word assuredly, that's uh, without a doubt. And he gives him the timing of it. And he says a sign that would happen, the rooster will crow twice and you're going to deny me three times in that process. And so what we see here is of all the other disciples who remained silent and did not place their confidence as outspokenly as Peter did, didn't suffer as much damage, so to speak, as Peter did. He crashed. It was a terrible crash and burn. The humiliation. I mean, to the point where he cursed and denied that he even knew the man. And then he went out and wept bitterly. To the degree that we trust in the flesh is the degree that we're going to suffer pain within our walk with God. And so there's a couple things, probably more than that, there's probably a list of things we could make that we want to avoid in our walk with God. One, we should avoid becoming angry with God. Now, Peter could have gotten angry. Don't you know who I am, Jesus? I'm the fisherman from Galilee. Don't you know I'm the best fisherman on the lake and I've got a, I had a very successful business until I f- sold out and started walking with you? I beat up everybody on the North Shore. I'm the big guy here. So I'm not going to deny you. I don't know any of that. But you, you follow me. It'd be easy for a guy of that stature, the leader, to become embarrassed and then to become angry with God because of the disagreement. We have expectations. If those expectations are not met on occasion, we become angry with God. Do not go there. Count your blessings if God doesn't answer your prayer according to your preference. He's got something better in mind, something usually that's more with a long view in mind and more inclusive than just you. And that's a wonderful thing. You learn to accept that. Don't, don't get angry with God. And just remember that we live in a cursed environment. We have a cursed nature. And so we're blind to most everything and we're ignorant of a lot of things. There's a lot more that we don't know than what we do know. What we need to focus on is what we do know about him and his nature and his character. We do well to call to mind the scripture in Psalm 103. Lord, it's merciful and gracious, and he's slow to anger and abounding in mercy. And he'll not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. And he's not dealt with us according to our sins, nor has he punished us according to our iniquities. As the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his mercy towards those who fear him. And as far as the east is from the west, so far as the Lord removed our transgressions from us. As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. He knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. This perspective that I am talking about requires faith. You just got to trust the Lord that father knows best. And he does. Number two, we should avoid placing any confidence in the flesh. And it always ends up worse than we can ever imagine. But that's natural ability that we all have to assume and presume things about ourselves and about what God might do on our behalf because he loves us so much. And we put things on God that we ought not. We lay things at the feet of God that we ought not. Be careful what we lay at the feet of the Almighty. Job learned that. What did he say? I repent in sackcloth and ashes. I put a muzzle over my mouth. God forgive me, you know. 
That's what happens when you walk with the Lord. We just come to realize that we all need divine intervention in our lives. Number three, we should avoid contradicting the Word of God. If God says something, don't disagree with it, don't add to it, don't take away from it. You get put in the penalty box for that one. You're going to get hurt. Don't do it. Woe unto the false prophets in our day and age and in the church of proclaiming to be in the church of Jesus Christ and representing God who misrepresent the nature of God. Adding to the word of God. Would not want to be in those shoes come judgment day. We are those who love God, we love his word, and we tremble at his word. It's not something we are to trifle with in any way. Now, there's a list we can make of the things that we should avoid. There's probably a number of things, and I probably missed a few of them in here. But focus, I think, should be to accentuate the good things in our walk with God. Concentrate on those things that you know are pleasing to God, and you become so busy doing the do's, you don't have time for the don'ts. Amen? So God has purposes. God has plans. God has made promises. And those promises have to be prayed for, prayed over. Verse 32, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus was crushed. Then he came to the place which is named Gethsemane. He said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John with him, and he began to be troubled and deeply distressed. And he said to them, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch. And he went a little farther, fell on the ground, and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. And then he came and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, Simon, are you sleeping? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed and spoke the same words. And when he returned, he found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. Then he came the third time and said, Are you still sleeping and resting? It is enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. This is the place of crushing. This is where God will bring forth a complete surrender in the life of Christ. For you and I, this Gethsemane, which means oil press, is the place of crushing. It's where they would crush the grapes, grapes, the olive berries, and to acquire the oils. This crushing it brings forth a fragrance. There was a beautiful fragrance that rose to the Father as Jesus completely surrendered. And it is the same for us. The fragrant is a fragrant oil in the nostrils of God when he, we follow the steps of Christ and come in absolute surrender to his will. And so for most of us, we have been taught that this is a comparison between uh, 
this garden and the Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden, we had man's disobedience with the first Adam, and here in the Garden of Gethsemane, we have the second Adam in full obedience to our Father in heaven. And Jesus separated himself for this time of prayer. He separates himself from the larger group with the three other men, and then even from them he separates a little further. Our prayer, our prayer life, is a call to separation, to close out everything and every distraction and to keep our focus completely upon the Lord. We need that time of separation. Why? Because there's a great spiritual warfare that's taking place. There's an activity right now in this time of within the unseen realm. Satan was bringing his minions, the mob, sent by the establishment because of what Judas had done, and they're going to arrest Jesus. The spiritual realm is heightened with spiritual activity, and Jesus is now feeling the weight and the pressure is upon him. It says he was troubled to be in extreme anguish, deeply distressed. It actually means to be alarmed. It was a great darkness that was coming upon him. Exceedingly sorrowful, it says. Overwhelmed. Deeply grieved. Understanding that he was going to have nails planted through his hands in his feet. He was going to be beaten beyond recognition, mocked and scourged, crown of thorns jammed on his head. He knew what was coming. Such a brave soul indeed. When I think about the deeply distressed, this great darkness, there's, he could feel the weight of this. This is illustrated in, actually in Genesis chapter 15 when Abraham, who's really concerned at this point in time that he's been in the promised land for quite some time that he was told by God to go to, a land that had been promised to him and his descendants. So he's having an encounter with Yahweh in a physical sense, the physical Yahweh, he's there. It's the angel of the Lord. It says he says the word of the Lord came unto him. And he says, look, you know, what you, where's the seed? I have no children. Eliezer, my my servant's going to inherit everything. What's up with this? Now, I don't think he talked like that, but you know what I mean. What's up? Why? Why the delay? And then the Lord tells him that, look, it's going to happen. I promised. You were, my, you were part of my purpose. You were in my plans. I promised it. You need to pray. So God establishes a covenant with him. You can read the story there in chapter 15. Three animals, three, each of them three years old. Probably some significance with all that. Along with a pigeon and a turtle dove. And they cut the animals in half and placed the, the birds one side and one on the other. And then it says a deep darkness, a deep sleep comes upon Abraham. Horror and great darkness fell upon him. Every time there's a move of God to do something favorable for mankind. There is a move in the dark realm. Satan tries to impede and stop. Now, what do you think is going on in our church for the last three years? We've had sickness, death, tragedies. Now, if you, just, just, just so I'm, you know, 
We're under attack. This is what warfare looks like. We're over the target. The enemy wouldn't be paying any attention against this. I'm not trying to spiritualize this. This is a reality. You can sense the heaviness sometimes. But that's when God is going to do his best work. We are crushed through those trials. We're brought low. We're humbled by the trials. May God be glorified in that. But as we come through those storms of life and those tragedies, God manifests his glory. And it's coming. It's coming for this church at some point in time. Because that's the way God works. He has a purpose. He's got plans. He's promised to be with us, never forsake us. But even so, that may be true. And it is true. And it is the pattern. It is the template for believers. It still requires for us to pray. Before I leave that, this point here, let me again just reflect upon what agony, what crushing Jesus went through because none of us will ever reach this kind of, this level of suffering and pain. Hebrews 5, 7, and 8. In the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear. And though he were a son, yet learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all those who obey him. Who obey him. Are we, as his servants, are we greater than our master? Shall we escape trial and crushing? I think not. So don't be offended if you go through severe trial, tragedy, and pain. Nobody invites that. Nobody wants that. But understand that God has something good on the other side of it. Good will ultimately prevail. We aren't of those who apply scriptures at random. We dare not say these promises of God in a flippant way. Well, you know, brother, all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Well, yes and amen to the promises of God, and that is true. But when someone's in the throes of that deep pain, deep darkness, suffering and trial, let the Holy Spirit remind them of that. You wrap your arms around them so you weep with those who weep and you rejoice with those who rejoice. Because God has plans purposes and promises that require prayer. Jesus prayed and let's examine the seven things that we see in his prayer that you can incorporate into your life, into my life. He goes on a little further. We're talking about complete separation. If your prayer life is to become all that God intends it to be, it's because you are willing to separate yourself from everything else in your home and find a quiet prayer closet, if you will, to pray distraction-free environment. Burdened. You're going to be burdened with the burdens from heaven. Jesus began to be troubled. He was burdened. He fell to the ground. Brokenness. Our prayer life, a prayer life that is full of brokenness is a prayer life that has answered prayer. 
That's what, it, that's what happens when there's brokenness. God hears. God is near the broken and contrite. It's just the way he is. He's drawn to weakness. And Jesus was filled with the presence of the Lord in that place as he petitioned. That's number four. Separation, burdened, brokenness, and petition. Lord, is there another way? Unto you, Lord, all things are possible. If there's another way of other than me going through this cross, is there any other way besides me being crucified on the cross for mankind to be saved? And it's important that Jesus prayed that. It's important that he understood that as a man. It's important that we see it and understand that there was no other way for us to be saved but through Jesus Christ dying on the cross. And I don't care one little bit to offend human hubris to think that they, other people think that there's other ways they can encounter God and find their way into heaven or consider themselves worthy of heaven because of their works. You look at all the other religions and all the other attempts to find God. It's all based on works. You have to do thus and so to curry God's favor. To think that our self-righteousness is sufficient to provide atonement for our sin as they lie from the pit of hell. And people who believe that are deceived. See, we have this thing, again, human nature. What a tragedy. (laughs) We think the default position at death is heaven, when it's not. The default position of mankind is separation from God. Hell, and hell will eventually be delivered up into the lake of fire. That is the default position. We are all lost. We have no right to come into the presence of God. And so it calls for forgiveness of sin and atonement. And the only way that can be provided is through the precious blood of Christ. If there was another way, Jesus would not have died on the cross. Separation, burden, brokenness, petition, but intimacy. The intimacy that Jesus had with the Father. Abba, Father, Father, Father. This is our relationship as children of God. As born-again children of God, we have this Father relationship. It's intimate and personal. Number six, surrender. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And number seven, repetition. You keep praying. Don't stop praying. And you pray until you receive the answer. You know, we say the squeaky hinge gets the oil, right? The unjust judge gave relief to the widow who kept badgering him. Oh, this girl's just, okay, what do you want? In contrast to our Father in Heaven who is not frustrated or impatient with us, but loves us and wants to give it to us. The unjust judge did it for his own personal relief. God does it for his love and expressed to us. He will come to us. 
and give us what we need when we need it. And the disciples were sleeping. Why? Because human nature is weak. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Their eyes were heavy. When our eyes are heavy and we don't pray, there are no answers. You notice they could not answer Jesus. And it's the same way. If we don't pray, we're not going to get answers. We have not, James says, because we ask not. You wonder why God isn't working the way you would prefer him to work in your life? Oh, well, examine your prayer line. Are you praying? No, let me say this. None of us can pray enough. I mean, Paul kind of set the bar pretty high, didn't he? Pray without ceasing. Wow. Whoa. Yeah. Constant communion with our Father. That's what that implies. Repetitive prayer is very important in all this. Keep praying. It wasn't... It was watch and pray. Be alert. Pay attention to what's going on. Commune with God. Not sleep and snore, but watch and pray. So, you ever notice that when you go to pray, especially at night, (laughs) you've probably found out it's one of the quickest ways to fall asleep. Having trouble with insomnia? Just start praying. That'll take care of that right away. (laughs) The devil will put you right out, right? (laughs) Why is this important? Because there's a battle raging. Jesus felt it. He understood it. You feel it. You understand it. We've got to pray. The hours come. We pray because God told us to. We need to be obedient. We pray with urgency because it matters. It matters. It matters to us and it matters to God. Spurgeon said, He who prays without fervency doesn't pray at all. We cannot commune with God, who is the consuming fire, if there's no fire in our prayers. Does it mean anything to you? Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray my soul to keep. I mean, come on. That's okay for the little people. We're adults. Let's get with it. Let's have some fire, some zeal for the Lord. Our prayers have to mean something to us if they're to mean anything to God. Mr. Babcock prayed that, said that. Let's think about this whole principle here in talking about purposes and plans and promises that require prayer. I want to illustrate this in Daniel chapter 9. Daniel had been reading, this is chapter 9, verse 2, he'd been reading in prophet Jeremiah that Israel's time of exile would be 70 years. Like, wow, okay. Start doing the math. Wow, we've been here 70 years. I was 15 when we come here. Uh, I'm 85. Wait, hey, that's 70 years. It's time for us to go back home. So what did he do? Well, that's up to God. God's got to do that. Whatever is preordained, it's going to happen. doesn't matter what we do. How many people believe that? You really can't change what's going to happen because what's going to be is going to be and it was meant to be. There's no need to pray. Whatever's been ordained will happen. I don't know where that doctrine came from, but it didn't come from the Bible because I don't see any of the prophets of God and or any of his servants of God taking a passive approach toward prayer. Daniel, look what he did. Verse 3 said, He set his face towards God. 
to make request, to make supplication with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. There's intensity there, folks. There's fervency there. He prayed to the Lord and made confession based on the truth of God's word. Confessing sin. Getting, telling the truth about who he was and where the state of the nation is. If we're going to make any headway in having divine intervention in this country, it's because we are doing the same. We're praying for nation. Praying for the future. It isn't all just ordained. There's human choice here. For those who struggle with this, allow me to take the time. I don't have this here, but this is for somebody. Maybe somebody listening on the internet. In Kings. Well, Samuel, excuse me. Let me find it and I'll tell you where I'm at. This is important uh, scriptural truth. In First Samuel, I think it's 23, David is in the city of Keilah. Now he's bailed these people out because the Philistines were, you know, hammering on them. And he, uh, him and his men take care of business. And then Saul hears that he's in at Keilah. And so he goes, David goes and inquires of the Lord and says, Hey, um, is Saul going to come down and, and to get me? And the Lord says, Yes, he's, he'll come down. And then he asks another question Will the people of Keilah turn me over? Yep, they'll turn you over, the Lord says. So what does David do? Does he stay in Keilah? <laughs> he splits. Now, so God saw in this situation a possibility of Saul coming down, of the people of Keilah turning David and his men over to Saul to kill him. He saw two things that would happen. But did those two things happen? No, because David made human choice. Oh, well, it was ordained that you know Saul come down and take him out and kill him. No. We have human choice. And we better be making good choices, right? Based upon the word of God. Hallelujah. This, someone tries to lay that little trip on you. Just give them that scripture and tell them to answer to this. I'm going to end with this. I'm going to read this. It's sort of a, a modern day or, or a contemporary view of the screw tape letters. And, and this is, it has to do with prayer. I think it has to do with our walk with God, the, kind of the subject matter of this morning, right? But let me read this. I don't know who to give credit to. It was from a friend, from a friend, from a friend type of thing, right? But it is as follows. Satan called a worldwide convention. In his opening address to his demons, he said, We can't keep the Christians from going to church. We can't keep them from reading their Bibles and knowing the truth. We can't even keep them from biblical values. But we can do something else. We can keep them from forming an intimate, continual experience with Christ. If they gain that connection with Jesus, our power over them is broken. So let them go to church, let them have their Christian lifestyles, but steal their time so they can't gain that experience with Jesus Christ. This is what I want you to do. Distract them from gaining hold of their Savior and maintaining that vital connection throughout their day. 
How shall we do this? asked the demons. Keep them busy with the non-essentials of life and invest unnumbered schemes to occupy their minds, he answered. Tempt them to spend, 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 then borrow, borrow, borrow. Convince them to work six or seven hours a day into ten to twelve hours a day so they can afford their lifestyles and keep them from spending their time with their children. And as their families fragment, soon their homes will offer no escape from the pressures of work. Overstimulate their minds so that they cannot hear that small, still voice. Entice them to play the radio or CD player wherever they drive to keep the TV, the DVD player, and their CDs going constantly in their homes. And use their phones, I will add. Fill their coffee tables with magazines and newspapers. Pound their minds with news 24 hours a day. Invade their driving moments with billboards. Flood their mailboxes with email and junk email. Sweepstakes and every other kind of newsletter and promotion. Even in their recreation, let them be excessive. Have them return from their holidays exhausted, disquieted, and unprepared for the coming week. And when they gather or spiritual fellowship, involve them in gossip and small talk as they leave their souls, leave with their souls unfulfilled. Let them be involved in evangelism, but crowd their lives with so many good causes that they have no time to seek power from Christ. Soon they will be working in their own strength, sacrificing health and family unity for the good of the cause. It, is, it was quite a convention. And the demons went eagerly to their assignments. God has purposes and plans and promises that require prayer. It's now the exhortation from the Lord this morning that we give ourselves as men and women to prayer. Father, we thank you for your word and we receive from your hand, Lord. We're asking, Father, that you would Strengthen each of us in this raging battle for the control of our minds, control of our families, this battle for the control within our nation, Lord. Bring us into that quiet place, Lord. Teach us how to pray, to get a hold of you, to get a hold of the truth, and to walk with boldness, confidence before you. Father, you promised to give us everything we ever needed in our battle. So, Father, equip us for what lies ahead. And we do pray, Father, that you'll show us things to come, that when it does come to pass, we glorify you. Stir up your people, Lord. Stir up the gifts that are within each one in this room and in this building, Lord, and those listening online. Stir up these gifts, Lord. And may we glorify you in all that we do. In Jesus' name, amen. Shall we stand?